0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in San Francisco for a meeting with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden and the annual APEC economic leaders meeting. China's consumer and industrial activity have expanded faster than expected in October, and over 300 agricultural techniques have been promoted by China in Africa during the past decade, benefiting over a million farm households on the continent. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ga Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in San Francisco for a meeting with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden and the annual APAC economic leaders meeting. This will be the first meeting between the two leaders since last year's G20 summit in Bali. President Xi was warmly greeted by many overseas Chinese, including Chinese students studying abroad who waved both Chinese and American flags along the route from the airport to welcome the Chinese president. Meanwhile, the locals of San Francisco are expressing their hope for strengthened cooperation between China and the United States. Let's take a listen.
0: I think it's great that they're willing to cooperate like that. I think there's a lot to get from China. Their, um, their technology is subpar at this point, so uh, I definitely think to gain as or to maximize as much as possible on that.
1: I know that the U.S. Um, uses a lot of resources from China. Um, so I, I believe like just that collaboration in, in general
0: um, should be uh, it should be utilized a lot more especially with technology
2: I think anytime the two countries can communicate it's going to help business for both countries I, I'm a resident of San Francisco and obviously we have a, a wonderful vibrant Chinese community here and I think uh, anything that for about San Francisco's visibility, and the Chinese community is very positive.
3: I hope that they can realize what they are missing, and that they can collaborate with China. Um, we have a lot of problems in this in this country, you know, and so I think it would be great if they really decide to collaborate with China and stop this yeah tension
4: i i think it's great that we're talking it's it's the the technology of the future so it, it really needs to be worked out now how we how we're dealing with all that stuff so i think it's great that we're having conversations about it
1: now we're San Francisco residents expressing their opinion on China-U.S. collaboration. So to talk more on the highly anticipated meeting between the two leaders joining us on the line are Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of the International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zhao.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: We're also joined by Einar Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Great to have you, Einar.
4: Nice to be with you, Anna and Zhao Hai.
1: Gentlemen, President Xi has arrived in San Francisco for the summit with President Biden and to attend the APAC meeting. He was received by California Governor Gavin Newsom, U.S. Treasury Secretary Jenny Yellen, and other U.S. representatives at San Francisco International Airport. Dr. Zhao, let me begin with you. How do you interpret the choice of these specific figures to welcome President Xi, and what signals my dissent about the nature and importance of this visit?
5: Uh, I think the choice of these two uh, U.S. officials to receive presidency at the airport is uh, quite interesting. Uh, first of all, the level is about relatively the same because when presidency goes abroad, uh, normally you have uh, vice ministers or vice presidents at the airport receiving or cabinet-level officials to receive presidency. So from that uh, I think to have a cabinet, uh, representative like, uh, Janet Yellen, treasurer secretary, uh, it's not out of ordinary. However, the peak of, uh, Governor, uh, Gavin Newsom and uh, combined with Janet Yellen seems to be uh, sending signals to, uh, the Chinese side and also to the world that the U.S. is really, um, appreciate, uh, President Xi's visit. And also it's the kind of a return to the hospitality that the Chinese side showed to the governor of California, when he visited China, because President Xi received him uh, mm-hmm. as well. So I think this is the uh, kind of signal. And also, uh, remember, General Yellen is not only the Treasury Secretary, but also she's now the head of uh, China-U.S. economic uh, work, uh, work uh, group. So therefore, that shows the importance of bilateral economic relationship. Uh, at the same time, so I think those uh, people at the airport shows that. This uh, important relationship uh, is, on the one hand, very important uh, for the APEC because that's the location, San Francisco's location of that APEC meeting. And Gavin Newsom, uh, to a certain extent, is actually playing the host. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the uh, the other side, you have Janet Yellen that shows the importance uh, of the bilateral relationship, and that uh, still, you know, economic relationship is still the ballast about the relationship.
1: Ainer, what insights can you glean from the involvement of these key figures in the reception?
4: Well, first off, I'm, I'm a little surprised. Janet Yellen has been the now de facto point person for the Biden administration with China. Where's Blinken? Uh, I mean, this would be a State Department uh, area. Uh, traditionally, he would be the one at the airport. He is not there. Obviously, there are other things that he's concerned about, especially uh in uh, in Gaza, but um, you know Janet Yellen is more than just a figurehead here. She's had meetings with uh, uh, premier, uh, vice premier, her her, about you know the the, the U.S. situation, which is fairly dire. Um, this year alone, uh, the U.S. Uh, went into debt two trillion dollars on a 6.2 trillion overall budget. It means they only took in 4.2 trillion and they spent six. Um, those have to be paid for with bonds. And right now there is not a huge appetite for bonds, uh, treasuries, because, quite frankly, they've been very volatile. So I think she has been meeting uh, and making very clear that um, while the U.S. and China have their differences, China does not want to see the U.S. fail. And I think she's trying to convince the uh, Chinese side to either keep their bonds or at least buy some more if it's possible, uh, because there's a lot of capacity there. and Their uh, choice is very simple. Either they buy the bonds back themselves or uh, they find others to do it. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on central banks around there. Gavin Newsom, I think it's a great photo op for him. He obviously has his eyes on the White House at some point. Um, But he is interested. And California is a huge um, trading partner with China. And uh, he wants to be front and center, especially when times are uh, very tough. I mean, there's been some good economic news, but there's also some things that aren't going as well as uh, everyone hopes.
1: And mm-hmm. given the gesture made from the U.S. side, uh, this trip indeed is crucial for the two nations and it has captured global tension. Uh, what issues do you anticipate? What will be the focal points for China and the United States respectively during the trip?
4: Well, for for the U.S., there are a lot of uh, political uh, issues. For instance, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of talk about fentanyl um, chemicals, precursors, they call them. Well, these precursors aren't made for fentanyl. They're made for uh, the industrial and consumer market. They can be used to create fentanyl. But remember, fentanyl is an artificial drug, and many things can be used uh, to create it. But this has become a a flashpoint. Military to military ties. Obviously, this is something that the U.S., uh, Biden has said that he wants to see uh taiwan is going to figure into this so is uh gaza and uh, ukraine um but you know if, if you look at from the u.s side it's it's all about either conflict or economics if you look on the chinese side she has been emphasizing people-to-people relations mm-hmm. trying to make a much more sustainable uh relationship uh they obviously would love to see the terrorists uh go um you know taken away uh, which would actually help the US uh, drop uh, inflation by a quarter point just by itself uh, but would stimulate trade at a time when uh, China and uh, the US need to come together not just for themselves but for the entire world uh, it's, you know, there's conflicts there's economic issues and uh, let alone uh, you know the environment uh, these things have to be addressed and they have to be done together i mean there's also uh, you know, on the digital side, we have AI and things like that. This really needs a time of leadership. And I think uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government is saying, look, you know, we have to come together, we have to put aside what you perceive as, um, you know, competitive points and start thinking about how the world is going to work for the next 20, 50 years.
1: Dr. Zhao, from a personal perspective, what aspects of the upcoming discussions between Xi and Biden are you most interested in? Uh, Which specific areas do you believe hold the potential for achievements in their talks?
5: Well, uh, first of all, I I think we have to not just pay attention to the summit, we have to know where uh, there's a long way towards this uh, summit. Both sides have been working very hard Mm -hmm. the past six months to make this uh, meeting happen. So if you look at what uh, both sides have been talking about from the very beginning, the Blinken visits, and then Yellen's visits, Romando, Kerry, uh, and others, there are multiple meetings that cover a variety of issues that almost very comprehensively every aspect of the bilateral relationship. So first of all, uh, it's very, and also, I'm sorry, also including um uh, foreign Minister Wang Yi's talk with uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the security, national security advisor. So from the very top, the key issues is actually talking about the future of China-US relations. Uh, you know, both leaders need to come up with a vision to uh, direct the, or guide this very complex relationship moving forward, because without that, uh we're just uh charging into an unknown waters and the relationship is gonna because of just a uh, you know black swan or some accident. And the other thing is that uh, both sides talk about uh, very importantly uh I mentioned Taiwan and Chinese side need the US to reassure on this issue that they will not support our independence, that they will keep up uh, keep to their words uh, to the limitation of three communication. That's very important because that's a core interest of China's core interest. And the other thing that they need to talk about, of course, is uh, the, uh, the, China, the the so-called Asia Pacific or American side, Indo-Pacific, refers to uh, security because there's maritime issues at hand. Uh, there are all kinds of disputes along Chinese borders. And the U.S. military and Chinese military at some point need to talk with each other and, uh, have a agreement on their, uh, conduct or their behavior with each other. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that, uh, there are other, uh, very important issues Einar mentioned, uh, but I think it's, um, in addition to that, I I think there are other issues, economic issues, Mm -hmm. uh, and from Chinese perspective, there are trade issues, there are technology or export control issues are all very important. So on the American side, of course, there are concerns as well including uh, the American business uh, operating in China, uh, the, their, their own uh, investments, uh, and uh, also their concern about uh, China's uh, limitation of export. So altogether, I think uh, perhaps there's not enough time for both leaders to talk about all these issues, but we hope that at least they set the tone for the future talks between the two sides because now we have established multiple uh, communication channels. They will mm-hmm. talk to each other Uh, uh, through on the working level and through high level officials. So in the future, we would expect deliverables gradually coming up, not, not from just uh, this one summit.
1: Dr. Zhao, indeed, this encounter and previous engagements definitely indicates that the relations between China and the United States are headed in the right position. But might the summit this time suggest a favorable change in the trajectory of China-U.S. relations in general, maybe potentially representing a pivotal moment for both nations?
5: Um, I wouldn't say it's a pivotal uh, moment because this is an ongoing process. There's no sudden change, for instance, in American strategy towards China or China's strategy towards the United States. However, at this point, uh, the global situation and both nations' domestic situation are changing. And both sides need to uh, take that into account and adapt to the new situation and change their policies to uh, accommodate those uh, situations. Uh, That's one thing. And the other thing is that I think the world is looking at these two great powers uh, coming towards uh, confrontation, and they are really deeply worried. So we're at the meeting of APAC and all the old Asia-Pacific nations want the U.S.-China relationship to be improved. Uh, so I think this is a global wish. And so at the end of the day, I think both sides realize, and particularly Janet Yellen said that, that the economic decoupling will be catastrophic. And also, from a military perspective, a clash between the two armies Would be also catastrophic. So I think the leaders have a historical responsibility to avoid this kind of catastrophe and lead the relationship towards a positive, better future.
1: Aina, what's your perspective? Does this face-to-face meeting between President Xi and Biden signal a positive shift in China-U.S. relations in general, possibly making a turning point for the two nations?
4: Well, I, I, I do. I, I mean, I agree with uh, Zhao Hai. This is not a pivotal moment, but there's something very important people have to realize. If you go back years and years ago, it was always the U.S. who was setting the agenda and telling uh, China, this is, you know, this is what's going to be on the agenda. This is what we want to talk about, and we want you prepared to do that. And China was also very, uh, often very, very passive. Now that changed uh, in Anchorage. Um, When, you know, the Chinese side said, look, we don't want to hear this nonsense about why we're bad. We're here to talk, not be berated. Um, And now what you have is um, a meeting of two leaders who are looking at each other and trying to figure things out. The U.S. needs things from China. It's painted itself into a quarter, Gaza, and it would like China's help uh, to get out of it. The same in Ukraine. Uh, it's the U.S. who's been saying, oh, can you do something, talk to Iran, see if they'll do something mm-hmm. to, you know, ra- ratchet things back. Oh, talk to Russia. Can you do this? Well, that's a very different narrative, you know, from a country that has uh, 400 bases surrounding China and says that we have to contain China. So th- th- there is there is a real difference here in terms of the posture of both parties. Um, and I think it, it's, it's healthier. It uh, recognizes that the world is, in fact, multipolar. Uh, it is not just the US and China but there are many other voices out there and many other players and there, and there has to be a change in the, the way that countries deal with each other and i think that's ha- happening subtly in washington not always uh, uh, very smoothly there's still this uh, tendency to fall back on american exceptionalism this idea that you know uh, america's doing all these bad things for the good of the world um i think she is You know, prior to this, there was a lot of meetings in China talking about this culture of how you can have harmony without having conformity or uniformity. The idea that every country is different and that we have to respect each other, learn about each other, but we don't have to necessarily embrace what others do. We just simply have to accept that what somebody else does. Now, that was something that uh, Europe recognized. During the Treaty of Westphalia, when after a hundred years of slaughters on both sides, Catholics against Protestants, Protestants against Catholics, they were so bankrupt and so tired of the, of the death that they just simply said, hey, what you do in your state, uh, is your business and not what I do, what we do in my, our state is ours. And from that, there was a, a great period of peace until World War I. And I think, um, there is that moment again where, um, you know, from a moral point of view, Uh, China is saying, look, we're all human beings. We all want to succeed. We want to be secure. Uh, But for that to work, we have to respect each other. And I I think that's um, part of the narrative that's coming from the Chinese side, which is um, unfortunately sometimes a little bit too subtle uh, for folks in Washington.
1: I know if we go back a little bit, um, the China-U.S. relationship has gone through a bumpy journey in the past few years. But at the same time, no matter at which stage, uh, China and the United States tried to identify a stabilizer in their relationship. Uh, It was economy, military, and now many people think it's climate issue or people-to-people exchanges. Uh, What do you think is the cornerstone of China-U.S. relations today?
4: Well, a lot of it is economic. I mean, if if the U.S. were to simply say we're not going to buy anything that's Chinese or anything uh, that comes, you know, that's more than 60 um, you percent know, uh, from China, uh, it would literally wreck the economy. Uh, there wouldn't be enough production. Prices would rise. Um, it wouldn't be jobs going back to the U.S. Uh, because uh, they would manufacture there. But it, it would not be world competitive because the prices would be so high. So a lot of it is economic, but um, it's it's the cornerstone really is just getting to know each other and accept that there are differences. Um, The U.S. has to accept that China's success is built on a different system. And it's not bad. It's not a threat to the U.S. You know, what China is doing is help its people. There should be some respect for that. Uh, What the U.S. is doing is the U.S. business. What you don't hear from the Chinese side is, you know, uh, a lot of criticisms about you know what's happening uh, there, although medicines have been commenting uh, about uh, you know San Francisco and the cleanup of uh, all the homeless people there and things like that. I think in the end, there has to be respect on both sides, and that that really is not just the cornerstone of the relationship, but it's going to be the cornerstone of uh, you know the world peace. unless these two powers can work together, all it's going to do is uh, give country freedom to embark on more. You know, adventures, military ventures, uh, it will depress uh, any kind of business out there because no one wants to invest in uncertain times. Mm-hmm. So really important that they, they come together. I know the economics are really the only thing that put them together, but I would love to see uh, a moral component in there where people recognize that, you know, there are basic things that we all want to do in terms of being secure, having you know, uh, prosperity and, and mutual respect.
1: Indeed. Dr. Diao, what's your perspective over the course of China-U.S. relations in the past several years? In your opinion, what do you see as the current uh, cornerstone of China-U.S. relations, considering the evolving dynamics?
5: Well, um, I think right now there's um, really no uh, very solid cornerstone for Mm -hmm. China-U.S. relationship. That's why we're experiencing a difficulty between the bilateral relationship. In the 1980s, if we recall, uh, back then China and U.S. are working together to uh, face a common challenge uh, geopolitically. And then um, in the 1990s, um, when China, particularly at the end of 1990s, when China entered into WTO, a very uh, sophisticated, uh, you know, interdependent economic relationship helped to uh, found this cornerstone between the two sides. And with the rise of China, I think the United States is now very much in a very uh, confusing sort of stage because on the one hand um, they are witnessing what Einar has pointed out the world is moving towards a multipolar uh, system uh, however there's still a group of people wanting to insist that the u.s should dominate the world and uh, uh, lead, uh, you know stay in the leadership role uh, regardless in, in what aspect so i think uh, they are now in a self-contradicting uh, policy uh, stage. Uh, there, so that's why the uh, policy is not quite clear over the years. And mm-hmm. also that's why in the world there are so many um, sort of conflicts uh, like uh, what happened in Ukraine or Gaza uh, that right now the U.S. has difficulty to deal with. So I think uh, in the future, China and the U.S. needs to reconstruct that cornerstone. And that should be based upon two people's uh, both wanted to have peace and development. Both want to have a better life uh, in American Constitution and in Chinese Constitution. And um, Chinese Party's uh, aim is to serve and fulfill people's uh, ever-growing uh, uh, demand. I think on the U. S. side, same thing. Uh, that The the, uh, the people in the United States want a better life. So I think that is a cornerstone, and that should be people-to-people exchanges. Uh, increase the people-to-people exchanges, mutually recognizing both sides have a right to pursue a better life. And that is, I think, the base for mutual respect and mutual uh, understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think recently, um, well, on the Chinese side, presidency in particular emphasized uh, the importance of people-to-people exchanges and also the two sides from the government perspective are trying to uh, increase like flights and increase... Uh, 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 visits between the two sides and gradually restore uh, the the ties that's been interrupted by the pandemic.
1: Thanks gentlemen for your time and insightful opinions. That were Dr. Zhang Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and Einar Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. More to come. China's consumer and industrial activity have expanded faster than expected in October, and over 300 agricultural techniques have been promoted by China and in Africa during the past decade, benefiting over a million farm households on the continent. You're listening to Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Stephen Orlings was a diplomat on former U.S. President Jimmy Carter's team, working to establish diplomatic relations between Beijing and Washington. Now, Orlings is president of the National Committee for U.S.-China Relations, advising senior leaders on both sides to build a constructive bilateral relationship. My colleague Wang Guan sat down with Orlings to get his view on the future of U.S.-China relations.
0: Steve, let me begin with your earlier years. At 26, you were one of the youngest diplomat on President Jimmy Carter's team, working to help establish diplomatic relations between our two countries. Um, What was it like? In retrospect, it was amazing. At the time, I didn't really
2: understand the importance of what we were doing. I always joked that I was the Xiao Tu in the U.S. State Department. I was in the legal advisor's office And because of my background, I was put on the team that was going to help establish diplomatic relations with the United States. And, you know, when you're 26 or 27, you don't understand the implications of what your work is for the world. So we did it. We accomplished it. I remember when Deng Xiaoping uh, came to the United States in late January of of, uh, 1979 established diplomatic relations on January 1, 1979, and we all went to the White House lawn to welcome him. And I remember being so moved by the playing of the national anthems of the United States and China. You know, just standing. It was a cold, sunny day. And just standing on the lawn, seeing Dung, seeing Carter, was even though I was young and didn't understand what this meant, it was a remarkable experience, a deeply moving experience. And what I didn't realize on that date is we had put in process a peaceful
0: relationship with China for the next 43, 44 years. sdv yes, you once talked about the importance of either side sending positive feedback signals to the other side so that there can be a virtuous cycle instead of having this current downward spiral. Um, Where can the two sides start? And why, like you said, having a constructive relationship is in the best interests of the future generations of people on both sides? Take a simple example of the
2: tariffs. Who really benefits from the tariffs that were put in by the previous administration and then China retaliated by putting in tariffs of their own? It reduces American exports to China. It hurts China's exports to the United States. Most importantly, the biggest losers are lower-income Americans. That So it, we estimate that these tariffs cost the average American family around $1,000. If you're wealthy and you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you don't even notice these tariffs. But if you're a lower-income American and you're making $25,000 or $20,000 a year and you are paying this $1,000 in tariffs, you have to find somewhere... To save the money. So do you not buy your children shoes or pants or shirts or school books? That, if both sides agreed to end the tariffs, the people on both sides would immediately see benefits. This wouldn't be like a Fed interest rate increase where it takes time. Mm. We would immediately see this money go back into the pocket of consumers. We would immediately see... All Americans benefit. So it's something that's what I thought is low-hanging fruit. Of course, there's a tiny percentage of America that does benefit, who benefit from protectionism. But it's a tiny percentage. So I urge both governments to act to do that. Closing of the consulates. So the previous administration closed the, the Chinese consulate in Houston. Punishing Americans in the southwestern United States so punishing people in Texas in Arkansas in these areas closing of the consulate in Chengdu just reopen them the people will instantaneously benefit so it's, it's some of those issues which I think the overwhelming majority of both Americans and Chinese benefit from are things which both governments can do. And what I hope that does, it then creates what you referred to, is the virtuous cycle. So instead of this cycle down, this downward spiral, we create a cycle up and there
0: are other things that both governments can do. If you think about climate change, uh, which is giving us a big lesson, and also uh, pandemic, public health issues, uh, if there were to be a lack of cooperation We already see the fact that there has been a lack of cooperation and we saw uh, the consequences, very negative consequences. Yes, it's true. It, It kind of breaks my heart,
2: you know, in a lot of ways. Look back to Ebola. So when Ebola broke out, what I saw were Chinese and American scientists working on cures, working for ways to make sure that epidemic didn't become a worldwide pandemic. And we had that cooperation. We had it. It worked. Ebola was was confined. It was success. If you look at the outbreak of COVID, it wasn't a success. We didn't have the cooperation that we needed in healthcare, And that's not the result that any of us want. So we need to reestablish that cooperation on health care. When I think about climate change, again, one of the great moments for me the last 18 years was when that I'd been president of the National Committee was when President Xi and President Obama met and they together uh, drove the signing of the Paris Accords. It was such a moment that to me represented the future. This was America and China leading the world in a positive way, in a productive way, dealing with the most existential threat that both of our societies have and we need to get back on that path, that failure to deal with climate change together. We may not be able to deal with it together, but I can guarantee you one thing, is separately we will fail. That China and the United States need to together confront climate change and come up with ways to deal with what is, again, for my grandchildren, for my children even, is an existential threat. Has the relationship got so bad that we don't want to work together to preserve this world for my grandchildren and your children? I say it hasn't. And the leaders need to show leadership and find ways to cooperate on climate change.
1: That was President of the National Committee for U.S.-China Relations, Stephen Orlings, speaking with my colleague Wang Guan. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us.
5: From sustainability and digitalization to trade, health, and energy security, 21 major Asian-Pacific economies gather to address the most pressing global challenges and to create a future of sustainable economic growth. Join CGTN for our coverage of APEC 2023.
1: This is Road Today. China's consumer and industrial activity expanded faster than expected in October. Data from the National Bureau of Statistics shows that China's retail sales of consumer goods in October climbed 7.6% compared to last year. The country's industrial production went up 4.6%. Recently, some international institutions have upgraded China's economic forecast for 2023. Morgan. Stanley hiked China's GDP growth forecast from 4.9% to 5.1% this year. So for more on this, my colleague Zhang Yang spoke spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation.
3: So Dr. Zhou, China's industrial output grew by 4.6% year on year in October. What are some of the main reasons for it?
6: If we are looking at that data, I would see that it is still in our upward growing trend. We are talking about that in June it's only 3.7, and then continuously 4.5 for the next two years. So we are still in a higher position to increase. So among these uh, reasons, I would say that the market is having more strength on recovering. Well, if you are looking at the details, there are many sectors that are uh, stronger than the the sectors who are weaker uh, compared with last year. So the sectors, including the chemicals and some of the machineries, Manufacturings, they are getting better because the market really sees the potentials of uh, producing more things and meets the demand of the market, not only in China, but maybe in other countries also.
3: Mm. And retail sales, a gauge of consumption rose by 7.6% in October. And these figures, we've seen rebound and beat expectations. So, what does it tell us about the consumption and also the economic recovery?
6: Yeah, when we're compared with the industrial output, uh, I, I mean the consumption is even even better when we're looking at that data. It has been continuously for four months of the groups. So among the reasons, uh, one of the, the reasons is very important, that is, you know, after the COVID, many people are going out to have the dinner in the restaurant. So we see that uh, for the consumptions, for the consumptions in the restaurants are growing uh, very fast and the restaurants grew about 18.5 percent compared with last mm-hmm. year at the same time. So the people are really want to trying to have a more opportunities to to gather and to discuss about the issues to meet with others. Well, it is also true that we are providing more products, more the consumption products to the people so they can have more consumption on the green um, products and also something to do with the digital ones. Well, this year we see a lot of improvement on the artificial intelligence. They, this technology has provided us with more opportunities to better our choices and make us uh, wiser to make the choices. So I would say that this new supply has made the consumptions are uh, stronger in past 10 months this
3: year. Mm -hmm. And also the fixed asset investment expanded by 2.9% in the first 10 months of this year. So how do you explain it? And for the real estate sector, what about the measures being taken so far? Are they functioning well to reduce the risk? And we need to make sure that there are no spillovers from that adjustment of the property sector onto the rest of the economy, paying close attention to small and medium-sized banks and the risks that can come from it, right?
6: Yeah, I agree with you that when we are looking at uh, the fixed investment, I think that for the trend, it is still decreasing. So in the continuously several months. So the rate of uh, decreasing means that, uh, you know, there are many things to worry about because we want to have a soft landing uh, instead of just hit the ground very hard. So we, we must uh, control the risk of uh, not, you know, let a lot of uh, related sectors be suffered a lot. As for the real estate, it's a real big problem because that uh, when we are talking about that it is our our industry not only connecting uh, with the banks but also connecting with many areas like the engineering's like uh, you know the materials and also the equipment of the engineers so we want to make it a little bit uh, stable trying to reduce the risk of the stock uh, and trying to not increase more risks and trying to limit it's spill over in other Mm areas. Well, for the fixed investment, I still Believe that there are more, uh, more kind of uh, trials trying to do some innovative ways on the investment, like improve uh, information infrastructure, like to provide a better support on the on the uh, on an upgrade upgrade of the sectors and technologies. So uh, for the fixed uh, investment, I still believe that we have enough strength to control the risk and trying to make it uh, a better base for the continuously recovery in the coming months.
3: Mm-hmm. And we are also seeing the October credit and total social financing data exceeded the market expectations. Uh, this is showing strong momentum, right? So what does it tell us?
6: It means that the governments are and, uh, you know, they have some, send some signals to the market and the banks already got that. So even in the, you know, normally the, the October is a uh, are uh, comparatively small months for the credit and the people are not r- really want to get loans from the banks, uh, including the enterprises. But this month, it is still expanding. So we can have some signal from the banks that they are really want to grasp the opportunities of the rest of this year and trying to have a better output uh, by the loans to support the real economy's recovery.
3: And at the same time, the economy is being challenged worldwide. And there are so many fronts that need money. And therefore, how much resources can be put into one priority? This is always an important question. So the government sets the priority now to have high quality growth, not just the high growth rate, but the high quality growth, which is driven by the digital economy, the green transition, and making it more sustainable. So could you elaborate more on that?
6: yeah I totally agree with that concept because you know in the world of recovery after pandemic, there are so many countries want to get out of the, you know, the mud and they, were, they really want to you know, try to find, find some ways for the growth as a responsible country in the world, China is not only our, our big suppliers of many products but we are also a big market to accept many you know, exports from other countries, so for the better and higher quality of development, we are trying to address the most challenging. Uh, The problems that we are going to to try and find out some ways to deal with that, like for the new energy, like to reduce uh, the the carbon emissions, and also trying to address uh, the poverty people. So for the higher quality, it's not only trying to put more strength on the best part of the society, but actually we're trying to improve the support to the lowest incomes, the party, and trying to address their problems. So we need to find some better and more balanced way for China to find our sustainable cooperation method with other countries, like what we are having in the United States for the APAC. So we, we may trying to address many new challenges by the cooperation. Mm,
3: and China has taken the lead in green innovation in terms of uh, having renewable energy, solar panels, etc., etc. So how do you explain China's role in the global supply chain on this front? I would
6: believe that China is, uh, you know, one of the uh, very important part of the global supply chain, the green trade and green investment as uh, one uh, the first reason is that Chinese market is really need that. We are trying to improve the quality of the manufacturing since we are a big country of manufacturing, we need to change a lot, so there are many potential market re- demands which can support the innovation and the second is that we have many connections with so many countries, so they really need us they really need us to improve their abilities to, to be greener. And uh, the third one, I think that there are so many things, not only for the real products, but also about the rules, uh, standards, and the ways that we are coping with others. So these are uh, you know some potential areas that China could play t- with other countries, like in the Belt and Road regions, and we can discuss what are the best ways to, to try to address the different challenges for different countries and to uh, grow up as a as uh, similar, uh, you know, the common interest of uh...
3: And talking about China-U.S. relations, earlier you mentioned that China and the U.S. could strengthen economic and trade ties during the APEC meeting this week. So, how could this be benefit for the steady recovery of both economies and the world as a whole?
6: I would believe that these two most important economies in the Asian Pacific regions could do more. You know, if we are looking at the market, there are already so many talks and also meetings and visits. By different parts. So they really need the cooperation instead of just trying to, to fight against the, each other. So for the two economies, they both are big enough to, to hold so many diversified connections. Well, at the same time, when they are doing better, they are, sending, they are building some examples for other countries to follow. That will reduce a lot of risks and uncertainties for the recovery and have a better to meet the sustainable development as a, a common goal of us.
1: That was Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. This is Road Today. We'll be back.
0: Hello, my name is Alessandro golombievsky teixeira I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us.
1: You're listening to Road Today. China has promoted over 300 agricultural techniques in Africa during the past decade, benefiting over a million farm households on the continent. Chinese Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs Tang Renjian made the remarks while attending the second forum on China-Africa cooperation in agriculture. He said China has established 24 agricultural technology demonstration centers in Africa, providing training operations Opportunities for African management and technical personnel. So, to delve into China Africa agricultural cooperation, let's have Dr. He Wenping, expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Hello, thanks for having me. Anna. Over 300 agriculture techniques in Africa was promoted by China during the past decade. Uh, can you elaborate on specific uh, techniques and technologies that China has promoted in the region over the past decade and any stories on how these initiatives have influenced the local farmers and communities on the continent? Yes, uh,
7: actually I have been to uh, several this kind of uh, China-founded uh, uh, technical demonstration center, agricultural, uh, technical demonstration center in Africa. For example, remember clearly like in, uh, Mozambique and Zambia and the Luanda, uh, those, uh, uh Chinese agricultural, uh, demonstration center. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, those, uh, Chinese experts told me, for example, like a mushroom plant, planting, uh, before they are saying the local African farmers Uh, they uh, very uh, you know few of them have even heard about mushroom they even dare not to try to taste uh, this uh, what is this uh, eating way like this mushroom so they have no idea so and then the chinese uh, agricultural experts uh, planted make those mushroom available because it's not that uh, you know, taking longer time to come out with this product, and also can be easily transfer uh, this technical way. Yeah, how to uh, make this mushroom. So eventually, and uh, you know, invited them come come over and uh, cook this mushroom and uh, taste them, and then through those hard working, and also uh, you know, even uh, try them by themselves uh so gradually, uh, the people, local people know, wow, this is a very good, very tasty thing. And also, full of those uh, rich nutrition, very good for the health. And plus, no need such a high investment, uh, putting in lots of money and then waiting a long, long time, and then eventually can come out with results. So this is just one simple uh, example uh, to see yeah how are those uh, new agricultural products, can be introduced to local people and then from uh, some suspicion and then to fully understood and then being widespread. Now, actually, we also now build, like in Ethiopia, called the Bamboo, uh, you know, Bamboo Center, and help the local make full use of this bamboo, uh, mm-hmm. the Bamboo don't know how to make full use of them uh this bamboo can turn them uh into like even furniture uh during the uh even you can export those, those very you know hot place like our bamboo those uh even uh put on the bed and make it in the sofa and then can cool it down uh those are temperature so those things uh now we have been building a lot uh those with specific uh those agricultural products and then, really beneficial uh, for local farmers uh, for improving the you know income and also of course improving their livelihood
1: indeed those demonstration centers have played a an important role in transferring knowledge and skills to the local communities. And this is the second forum on China-Africa cooperation in agriculture. When new agreements or collaborative initiatives have been reached during this forum?
7: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think uh, uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, very important, uh, this plan called China uh, helping Africa agricultural modernization plan. Uh, this plan will guide uh, both China and Africa uh, moving towards uh, this from 2024 all the way to 2026. So in this plan, there are a number of, uh, uh, you know, contents has been elaborated, like uh, how to deepen uh, this, uh, strategic, uh, this synergy, uh, between China and uh, Africa, uh, for developing agricultural cooperation. So we are going to sign a lot of those MOU, uh, with, uh, those countries, uh, not yet signed. Uh, and then also China will together with African Union, uh, to finish make, uh, like, uh, make a joint plan, uh, this, uh, uh this, uh, you know, development plan, uh, plan for China Africa, this uh, agricultural modernization cooperation, And also China will build, uh, like a tropical agricultural, uh, this uh, scientific research center together with Africa, especially to, in, uh, improve like, uh, there's uh, a cassava. You know, the cassava is something like a bigger potato, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, because in China, we haven't heard that much. But in Africa, this is a major main food, especially in the Western African countries like in Nigeria. Uh, the cassava has been widely uh, been taken as the main food for all the people. So how to improve uh, this cassava? Uh, this, uh, uh, you know, the quality and uh, how to make full use of this uh, uh, this cassava is a uh, uh, value-added way. So this is uh, one of the folks, and then uh, Agri- agricultural technical cooperation, and uh, how to make this uh, one country one product. Uh, make uh, not seeing all the African countries, especially the nearby countries, they all focus on planting the same agricultural product. That will cause a competition among those countries uh, around. Uh, so now, similar like China, one, uh, you know, village, uh, one product. Uh, this will make your specialty of your agricultural product. And then that will make complementary among those the countries uh, nearby, uh, especially in the regional uh, organization in Africa. So now we are, uh, you know, calling for uh, this one country, one product. Uh, this is a green development initiative, uh, like a banana or some is uh pie, apple, now is different uh, so of of course uh, anti poverty uh, this is the old ways, uh has been uh, already regarded uh, as a uh, focus uh, ever since two thousand six uh, china African summit, the very first summit all the way until now. so this uh, anti poverty uh, experience sharing and our you know even uh, agricultural expertise uh, dispatching uh, to Africa, so that's always one of the folks.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Dr. Ho, for your insightful opinion and your time. That's Dr. Ho Wenping, expert on African affairs and senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in San Francisco for a meeting with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden and the annual APAC economic leaders meeting. China's Consumer and Industrial activities have expanded faster than expected in October. And over 300 agricultural techniques have been promoted by China in Africa during the past decade, benefiting over a million farm households on the continent. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. And for more, you can also follow us on X at CDTN Radio. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.